0: Our scripture today comes from Matthew, chapter 26, starting in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy, What further witnesses do we need? We have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? This is the word of the Lord.
1: Court is now in session. We gather today to hear testimony of crimes against society and society's crimes against its own people. Today we will finally see justice, criminals brought to justice. At last, the judge will end his apparent silence. He will right every wrong, punish every transgression, sin will be judged. That's my year quota for using a prop. It's the most you'll ever see from me. (laughs) Whether or not you've been in a real courtroom, we all have this internal sense of justice where we long for that day when all the darkness brought into our lives will finally be exposed to God's light. You might feel as though society's structures in some way are stacked against you. Or someone has done some wicked thing to you and you feel you'll never have your day in court with them. Perhaps you have been through court and it seems that they are biased against everything that's good and right. But I want to encourage you today, friends, justice has been served and will be accomplished. Yet not in the timing or maybe with the results that we desire. Justice is a popular topic these days in our culture. We live in a society where it seems everybody has some claim on oppression, and they long for justice to be done according to their will. So if you've listened to recent presidential candidate debates, you hear all kinds of supposed injustices that need to be addressed. College tuition, racism, sexuality, health care, abortion, immigration. People all over our country are suffering, and these wrongs need to be made right. So whatever it is your experience or your political view, your internal desire for justice is a good one. Something does need to be done. But before we ever decide what needs to be done today, we need to see that injustice was already defeated 2,000 years ago on the cross in Christ. And lest we despair that not enough was done that day to fix what is broken in our lives today, we need to trust that in the future, one day, soon, he will return and fill his world with justice. All of our striving for justice, all of our complaints about injustice must be submitted to the reality that justice will only be accomplished through Christ, our high priest. That's our main idea today. Justice is only accomplished through Christ, our high priest. We will never land on right answers in these national political debates or find the peace that our hearts long for in our own suffering until we see that justice is only accomplished through Christ, our high priest. This isn't just a simple answer to a complex world issue. I don't intend this to be some spiritual cliche to wash over your real physical suffering. What is going on in the world and what you've experienced is very real. There are great injustices all around us, but all of it finds its solution in seeing it through the lens, the experience of the great injustice that we see in our text today. Jesus on trial Facing death is the most absurdly unjust thing that has ever happened in the history of the world. The injustice we see in the world is all intricately tied to this cosmic treason experienced that night. Yet, even in that great injustice, at the same time, Jesus accomplished perfect justice for all who follow Him. And seeing how Jesus faced this injustice completely reshapes how we see the world and how we engage a world that's full of corruption. If we truly want justice, then we will keep our eyes on what he accomplished in the past 2,000 years ago, and what he promises will come soon and very soon. So as we walk through this text, we are going to see two sides of the same experience. God sovereignly uses corruption to restore his kingdom goodness. At each step, we see injustice on display, but also how Christ is working to restore justice. We're just going to run through three parts of this text. First, looking at the witnesses in verses 57 to 61, and then the interrogation in 62 to 64, and finally the judgment in 65 to 68. The whole process is corrupt, corrupt witnesses, corrupt interrogation, corrupt judgment, but all of it unfolding by the sovereign hand of God. So before we go into the text, let's bow our heads and ask that God would sovereignly open our eyes to see him at work. God, in many, many ways, we can see that this world is not very good, as you once declared. Due to our sin, there is injustice, there is corruption, there is suffering and pain all over the place. I know many stories in this gathering of people who suffered at the hands of others' sin. Help us, God, to look to Christ and Christ alone as our only hope to restore what was lost when he returns as king. Amen. So let's begin our examination of this terrible trial seeing the witnesses brought forward starting in verse 58. Those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered and Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. No, the chief priests And the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. So this trial that's happening is occurring in the middle of the night. Right after they seize Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, they grab him, bind him, and lead him right to Caiaphas, the high priest, in his own home, where the whole Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, is waiting for him to hear his trial in secret. There's so much wrong with how this trial unfolds. According to their own law, these trials were to be held during the day at the temple complex, right before the eyes of God and all of the crowds. Never were they to, be, to occur during a festival or before a Sabbath. Yet here they are in the home of the high priest, in secret, at night, on the night of the Passover, that night where they're supposed to be celebrating, remembering how God passed over their own sins. Here they are, hiding it all from proper order to achieve the desired conviction that they know is wrong. And these trials were supposed to begin by laying out the charges and first giving the defense a chance to speak. But that's not what we see here. Verse 59 says, they immediately sought prosecution witnesses because they just wanted to condemn him to death they already determined he was guilty so what's the point of letting him speak bringing forward a defense but they did know that for the official public record they needed two or three witnesses they had to have two or three people who would come forward and say yes he is guilty to these charges we affirm that we witnessed it otherwise they couldn't have a public execution The council knew, though, they had no solid evidence. They were desperate to get rid of this Jesus, calling for anyone who had something to say against him. And many came forward, says verse 60, but they could not find even two corroborating witnesses. Just imagine the absurdity of this whole thing. They know Jesus. They know he's about 30 years old. He's lived there his whole life. They know the town he was born in. They know where his ancestors are from. They know his family. And for the last three years, he's gone all over the countryside preaching, teaching in public with thousands of people following him. And they can't find two. Two people who can put the same story together that would condemn him. Finally, verse 61 tells us that two people did come forward. And they said... Oh, we remember he said that he was going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. That's quite a serious claim. We might wonder, really, for destroying a building, death? But in their minds, this is not simply a threat against destroying property, but it's an attack on the entire religious order of Israel. This is an attack on their identity and survival as a people under God's authority. Nobody has authority over God's temple but God himself. To destroy the temple is to rebel against God. Unless you are God. Unless that authority is yours. And so we see the irony already developing behind the scenes here. We see hope in the midst of the sham of this trial. Because if you look at what Jesus really did say in John chapter 2, You see that the witnesses are twisting his words. That's not what he said. And they're pulling him out of context. He said that if you destroy this body, as in or this temple, his own body, it will rise again in three days. He was saying that if you attack me, if you strike me down, I will rise again. His very words were assurance that he cannot be destroyed. He will gladly take upon himself All the sinful injustice of the world, because that is exactly the reason he came to overcome all of the kingdoms. But Caiaphas, the high priest, is totally oblivious to this. He thinks, in his mind, in his authority, that he's finally trapped this heretic. So we turn to verse 62 and see how the high priest begins his interrogation. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I adjure you, I command you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So now, after leveling his predetermined conviction, Caiaphas finally gives Jesus a chance to speak, to defend himself. Does he really think that Jesus has all authority over the temple? That he has the power to destroy and rebuild it in three days? What a fool this guy is. Does he really think, this Jesus, that me, the high priest, has to submit to him? What a joke. This is going to be a short interrogation. Now, after following Jesus for three years in his ministry, Peter's seen enough to know that Jesus does have this authority. We've been going through the whole book of Matthew for a year and a half now, almost two years. We see, with hindsight, Jesus has this authority. So as we're watching this, if we were like Peter watching from a distance, we'd be getting so frustrated with this whole situation. Every single one of these false witnesses could be corrected. Every accusation so easily dismissed. The ridiculousness of it all is overwhelming. Why doesn't he speak up? Why doesn't he jump in and say something? Someone needs to set the record straight. Maybe if he just... Explained how it's all a misunderstanding. Or it did a miracle right in front of them. Then, then they would back off. But they had their opportunity. They've seen this all before. They heard it explained clearly enough. Jesus knows this isn't just a misunderstanding between two well meaning groups of people. This is a clash of two kingdoms. Christ's heavenly kingdom and Satan's demonic earthly kingdom. The battle being waged has been going on a lot longer than just this week that Jesus has been in Jerusalem. It's been going on since the very beginning when God established His kingdom on earth and put Adam and Eve in charge of the kingdom. And right away, the serpent brings forward false witnesses, false information, and says, did God really say? He puts God on trial right at the beginning. Causing the fall and everything, the whole world to fall into injustice. Yet God promised that one day a son of Eve would return and crush the head of that serpent. This battle with false witnesses will not be won simply by correcting false information. The answer to our problems isn't more education. Justice will only be accomplished when the true high priest makes atonement for the sins of His people, and He sits enthroned above all nations. That's what Jesus came to do. He will not be distracted from that mission. And so, He remains silent. In verse 63, Isaiah foresaw this moment as we began with our call to worship today in chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed, meaning He faced injustice, and He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that's before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. So the problem wasn't this single instance of injustice, but injustice that permeates the entire world, including every one of your hearts and minds. Because of our sin, we are all guilty of injustice. And anyone who is not in Christ continues to increase the injustice in this world every single day. Confronting Caiaphas would have maybe fixed that one problem, that particular situation, but it wouldn't have addressed the greater problem. Jesus wanted his kingdom of righteousness to permeate the whole world, not just this one kingdom. He needed to address the sin problem once and for all. So he remains silent. I just want to jump into an application a little earlier than I usually do as I think about Jesus remaining silent. If we're faithful kingdoms of his, citizens of his kingdom, I think we ought to have the same mindset. It breaks my heart to watch Christians engage in public debate while we lose all focus on Christ's mission. Yes, there are abundant injustices all over this country, all over the world, but the problem isn't primarily a broken government system. The problem is broken hearts, sin. We are rebels against His heavenly kingdom. The problem isn't injustice out there, but in here. And we forget that, so we dive into political debates with often even good and right arguments. And we totally distract from the main point. We get nowhere without addressing the primary problem of sinful rebellion against the king. It would be far better, I think, sometimes for us to keep our mouths shut than to engage these debates without our eyes on Christ. Not only do we lose focus in political debates, though, but when we personally experience injustice, when we experience our own oppression and given an opportunity to speak, it's far too easy for us to start complaining that it didn't go the way it ought to, to come to the, our own defense. When we forget that God's sovereign hand, He orchestrates all things together. His sovereign hand brought us through that moment. It's likely that every single one of you in this room has at some time or another had somebody else's sin affect you greatly and continues to affect you negatively. And to make it worse, it seems like everyone else around you just heaps the shame and the fear and the guilt upon you because they're so ignorant of your special type of suffering. And then we have this great modern invention of Twitter and facebook that allows us to finally open our mouths and have an audience to hear our complaints and hear our defense and we justify it by saying i'm just trying to bring awareness but the only person who needs to be aware of your suffering is already aware of all things and he's got it under control we don't need to come to our own defense because he has done it for us in this courtroom He stands bearing all our sin and those sinned against us. He promises He will make it right. We don't need to feel such desperation to declare the unfairness we feel. Because of Christ, we can just take our sorrows directly to Him. When we open our mouths, we just compound the issue, make it worse, drawing people away from the truth. The Gospel, the only solution to the problem anyway. We make the injustice all about us. We draw attention to ourselves instead of pointing to Christ who is at work to make right every injustice. Whenever we complain about things being unfair, we just sound like my kids who are always fighting over toys saying it's not fair. We don't know what fair is. We act like we're the high priest standing over Jesus. Like we know what's right more than He does. What's not fair is that the only righteous man to ever live was condemned to die for crimes he did not commit. Our crimes. The Son of God condemned by sons of men. Yet silently he trusted the Father's plan that this is the way that his righteous kingdom will permeate the earth. And Caiaphas demands that Jesus finally opens his mouth. So, Jesus must speak. He sticks to his focus on the coming kingdom. He answers this question about his identity as the Messiah. says, you have said so. It's his way of saying, well, that's not how I would say it, but generally it's correct. Yes, I'm the Messiah, but I don't want you to import all your ideas of what that means into this trial. And so to clarify, he explains his confidence in the kingdom plans of God. From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He has authority over the temple, over this priest. He's not here to start some political revolution or just fix this one broken situation. He says, from this point on, you are going to see how right and proper authority exercises it for the good of His kingdom on earth. And in order to do that, he first needs to take the world's judgment upon himself. This is the judgment decreed in verse 65. And the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. And they spit on his face and struck him and slapped him. Saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? So the priests knew what he was claiming when he said his one line of defense. Jesus' statement was a mashup of two Old Testament prophecies, Daniel chapter seven and Psalm 110. Daniel 7 shows us this vision of the heavenly courtroom, the, the seat, the throne room of God, and says, God is there and he hands all authority in heaven and on earth to this mysterious heavenly man. How is that possible? And then Psalm 110 gives us a little clearer picture, saying this heavenly man with all this authority is going to come to earth and crush his enemies. Verse 4 even says that this heavenly conqueror is a forever priest. So Jesus is claiming in this one statement to be the true high priest, the only one who's allowed to walk into God's presence. The only one who can make pleasing sacrifices to God. The only one who can purely make his people clean. He has all authority over Caiaphas as the king with authority given to him by God. He's the great prophet whose very own words are God's words through him. Jesus is claiming that this entire trial is completely upside down. The high priest, the judge, should take off his robe, step down from the bench, and hand it over to the man on trial. Which is almost what we see happen here. Caiaphas is indignant. He knows what Jesus is claiming, and no mere man should ever utter such words. He responds to these claims in verse 65 by tearing his robes, ripped his priestly garment, This is not an insignificant detail. Tearing one's clothes is a very common way in that ancient world of mourning something greatly, expressing extreme anguish. But the high priest was never supposed to tear his own garments. If you read about the design of the high priest's clothing in Leviticus 21, it says that the high priest is forbidden from tearing his garments, even if he's mourning the death of a beloved family member. What's so special about this? these garments that he's wearing? Well, if you read closely the design of the original tabernacle, the tent that God dwelt in in Exodus and Leviticus, and compare it to the design of the priest's clothes, you'll see very interesting similarities. The priest's garments were designed, patterned after the tabernacle, but in reverse. The tabernacle allowed God to dwell in the midst of a very sinful people. So these layers of fabric walls and curtains and coverings allowed his holiness to dwell in the middle of such sin without destroying them. But the rituals required that the priest had to go into the tabernacle. So he himself needed a covering. The robes are a sort of tabernacle covering his sin on the inside so he can walk into God's presence. So if the priest tears these robes, he's exposing himself to divine judgment, which ironically is exactly what Caiaphas did. In condemning Jesus and tearing off his garment, the priest sealed his own condemnation, exposing his sin before God without atonement, tearing the veil that had kept him safe. He was condemning Jesus for claiming to destroy the temple, yet in his very acts, he was doing that same thing. Caiaphas knew that a mere man did not have the right to destroy the temple, that he did it. And contrast that with Jesus, who does have such authority over that temple. And when He died on the cross, His blood poured out. What do we read happened? The curtain inside the temple torn in two, opening access to God's presence for all who are covered by His blood. Because His atonement was made by His own blood as the great high priest. In this very great injustice, we see through all kinds of ironies that God is sovereignly unfolding His plan. God's hand is at work up to and through this entire event. Even in the death decree. In verse 66, the council proclaims Jesus deserves death. Ironically, again, it's they who deserve death for their sin. But this is a judgment that Jesus is happy to take upon himself. It's utterly unjust what they decree. But yet he hears in the words of these sinful men the decree of his Father. He deserves death. He deserves death because in the courtroom of God, he, the Father looks down, the great judge looks down upon his own son and instead sees your sin in that courtroom and says, death on this man. Everything is wrong about this trial. Even as they proclaim in verse 68, prophesy to us as they slap him blindfolded, who hit you? It's ironic because just in the days and weeks leading up to this, he prophesied this exact thing would happen, but he remained silent, trusting it would unfold just as God planned because he is bringing his kingdom in a way that is totally counterintuitive to everything our natural mindset desires. He will bring his kingdom on earth and it will come by submitting to injustice. Trusting God to unfold His plan and building His new gathering of faithful kingdom citizens by pouring out His life and love. And when He rises from the dead, He hands this very mission off to the church. To us. To you and me. To live through this injustice in the same way He did. This is how we ought to engage the world when we experience injustice, oppression, suffering, So I want to leave you with just two things to focus on as we set our sights on the kingdom of Christ. First, we should remain silent, except to open our mouths to proclaim hope in the kingdom of God, in the justice accomplished in Christ. And second, we endure injustice by building the church until He comes. First, we need to remain silent. We need to control our tongues. Let Jesus' example of facing injustice be our guide. This is how his kingdom will come to earth. Facing injustice, enduring it, turning the cheek when one cheek is left, loving our enemies, those who curse us, rejoicing in suffering. Jesus didn't respond by asserting his authority or returning some carefully crafted argument. He remained steadily focused on this one task building his kingdom. He would die on the cross for every injustice that we complain about anyway. And he rose from the dead, guaranteeing victory over all of it. So every time we face injustice, we must immediately run to Christ and remind ourselves that it has been purchased, it has been fixed, it has been made right on the cross and in his resurrection. When we feel like someone's getting away with hurting us, we remind ourselves it has been dealt with definitively on the cross when we feel an urge to defend ourselves, we remind ourselves that He has already come to our defense. And we rest in the gathering of the saints. We keep our mouths shut except only to proclaim with confidence, with peace in our heart, that because of Jesus, all will be made right one day. Certainly not saying, friends, that we need to be okay with injustice okay with suffering i've experienced far too much of it in this life to be okay with it we should loathe, hate every form of it but we endure it with joy because we know it has already been destroyed in christ we do it because our focus on christ's mission to bring his kingdom honor is far greater than my mission to restore my reputation Our peace, through our oppression, our words of hope in Christ are our testimony in the world's courtroom that the power of the high priest who intercedes for us is greater than anything. When you speak of your oppression, do so only to proclaim the king's authority, your confidence that he is returning, and the gospel's light to shine into the darkness. And finally, with that confidence, let's get to work building the kingdom community that we call the church. This again is the counterintuitive way that Jesus is building His kingdom here on earth. When we see injustice in the world, our first instinct is, we got to go tell the authorities, which is necessary at times. That's a legitimate government or God-ordained authority. But then we spend all of our time changing laws, trying to impeach that Dastardly president. Starting a non-profit organization to address these things. But Jesus already established an ju- injustice busting organization. It's called the church. You guys. We are called to be a counterexample to the world. A miniature model of the kingdom that will fill the earth forever. Where justice rules among us. Love permeates everything. Submission to one another is common. We bear one another's burdens. We outdo one another in showing honor. When we see injustice in the world, yes, call it out as wrong and then run to the family where the kingdom is present. Invite those whom the world oppresses to join us in looking to Christ as the one who bore all of the injustice on the cross and promises to return to overcome it all. We live in a culture That is hell-bent, literally hell-bent on achieving social justice at the expense of truth. Let the church be a counterculture where we endure this broken world with hope. We open our mouths to speak the Gospel. We love each other through oppression, bear each other's burdens until the day that He returns on the clouds of heaven in glory. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, I long for that day. So often I am beaten, broken, tired of fighting. Every part of me wants to jump forward and make it happen now. Help me to have eyes to see that You are working. That You are patiently waiting to save more people. Help me to have mercy to love my enemies. To bless those who curse me. God, build us into a a miniature version of your kingdom that loves those who suffer. That builds us up in the love of Christ who makes us pure so that you can dwell with us. We thank you that in Christ we have all these promises and 10,000 beside. Amen.